0: section 35 of volume 1 f of history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of 1688 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by jim denison history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1f, Section 35, Chapter 69, Part 5. The Court was aware that the malcontents in England had held a correspondence with those of Scotland, and that Bailey of Jerviswood, a man of merit and learning, with two gentlemen of the name of Campbell, had come to London under pretense of negotiating the settlement of the Scottish Presbyterians in Carolina but really with a view of concerting measures with the english conspirators bailey was sent prisoner to edinburgh but as no evidence appeared against him the council required him to swear that he would answer all questions which should be propounded to him he refused to submit to so iniquitous a condition and a fine of six thousand pounds was imposed upon him at length two persons spence and carstairs being put to the torture gave evidence which involved the Earl of Tarras and some others, who, in order to save themselves, were reduced to accuse Bailey. He was brought to trial, and being in so languishing a condition from the treatment which he had met with in prison, that it was feared that he would not survive that night, he was ordered to be executed the very afternoon on which he received sentence. The severities exercised during this part of the present reign were much contrary to the usual tenor of the king's conduct, and though those who studied his character more narrowly have pronounced that towards great offenses he was rigid and inexorable, the nation were more inclined to ascribe every unjust or hard measure to the prevalence of the duke, into whose hands the king's had, from indolence, not from any opinion of his brother's superior capacity resigned the reins of government the crown indeed gained great advantage from the detection of the conspiracy and lost none by the rigorous execution of the conspirators the horror entertained against the assassination plot which was generally confounded with the project for an insurrection rendered the whole party unpopular and reconciled the nation to the measures of the court The most loyal addresses came from all parts, and the doctrine of submission to the civil magistrate, and even of an unlimited passive obedience, became the reigning principle of the times. The University of Oxford passed a solemn decree condemning some doctrines which they termed Republican, but which indeed are, most of them, the only tenets on which liberty and a limited constitution can be founded the faction of the exclusionists, lately so numerous, powerful, and zealous, were at the king's feet, and were as much fallen in their spirit as in their credit with the nation. Nothing that had the least appearance of opposition to the court could be hearkened to by the public. The king endeavored to increase his present popularity by every art, and knowing that the suspicion of popery was of all others the most dangerous, he judged it proper to marry his niece the lady anne to prince george brother to the king of denmark all the credit however and persuasion of halifax could not engage him to call a parliament or trust the nation with the election of a new representative though his revenues were extremely burdened he rather chose to struggle with the present difficulties than try an experiment which by raising afresh so many malignant humors might prove dangerous to his repose the duke likewise zealously opposed this proposal and even engaged the king in measures which could have no tendency but to render any accommodation with a parliament altogether impracticable williams who had been speaker during the last two parliaments was prosecuted for warrants issued by him in obedience to orders of the house a breach of privilege which it seemed not likely any future house of commons would leave unquestioned danby and the popish lords who had so long been confined in the tower and who saw no prospect of a trial in parliament applied by petition and were admitted to bail a measure just in itself but deemed a great encroachment on the privileges of that assembly the duke contrary to law was restored to the office of High Admiral without taking the test. Had the least grain of jealousy or emulation been mixed in the King's character, had he been actuated by that concern for his peoples or even for his own honor which his high station demanded, he would have hazarded many domestic inconveniences rather than allow France to domineer in so haughty a manner as that which at present she assumed in every negotiation the peace of nimeguen imposed by the dutch on their unwilling allies had disjointed the whole confederacy and all the powers engaged in it had dispended their supernumerary troops which they found it difficult to subsist lewis alone still maintained a powerful army and by his preparations rendered himself every day more formidable he now acted as if he were the sole sovereign in europe and as if all other princes were soon to become his vassals. Courts or chambers were erected in Metz and Brissac, for reuniting such territories as had ever been members of any part of his new conquest. They made inquiry into titles buried in the most remote antiquity. They cited the neighboring princes to appear before them, and issued decrees expelling them the contested territories. The important town of Strasbourg, an ancient and a free state, was seized by Louis. lost was demanded of the Spaniards, on a frivolous and even ridiculous pretense, and upon their refusal to yield it, Luxembourg was blockaded and soon after taken. Genoa had been bombarded because the Giennese had stipulated to build some galleys for the Spaniards, and, in order to avoid more severe treatment, that republic was obliged to yield to the most mortifying conditions the empire was insulted in its head and principal members and used no other expedient for redress than impotent complaints and remonstrances spain was so enraged at the insolent treatment which she had met with that without considering her present weak condition she declared war against her haughty enemy she hoped that the other powers of europe sensible of the common danger would fly to her assistance The prince of orange whose ruling passions were love of war and animosity against france seconded everywhere the applications of the spaniards in the year 1681 he made a journey to england in order to engage the king into closer measures with the confederates he also proposed to the states to make an augmentation of their forces but several of the provinces and even the town of amsterdam had been gained by the french and the proposal was rejected the prince's enemies derived the most plausible reasons of their opposition from the situation of england and the known and avowed attachments of the english monarch no sooner had charles dismissed his parliament and embraced the resolution of governing by prerogative alone than he dropped his new alliance with spain and returned to his former dangerous connections with lewis this prince had even offered to make him an arbiter of his differences with spain and the latter power sensible of charles's partiality had refused to submit to such a disadvantageous proposal whether any money was now remitted to england we do not certainly know but we may fairly presume that the king's necessities were in some degree relieved by france and though charles had reason to apprehend the utmost danger from the great and still increasing naval power of that kingdom joined to the weak condition of the english fleet no consideration was able to rouse him from his present lethargy it is here we are to fix the point of the highest exaltation which the power of lewis or that of any european prince since the age of charlemagne had ever attained the monarch most capable of opposing his progress was entirely engaged in his interest, and the Turks, invited by the malcontents of Hungary, were preparing to invade the emperor, and to disable that prince from making head against the progress of the French power. Louis may even be accused of oversight, in not making sufficient advantage of such favorable opportunities, which he was never afterwards able to recall but that monarch though more governed by motives of ambition than by those of justice or moderation was still more actuated by the suggestions of vanity he contented himself with insulting and domineering over all the princes and free states of europe and he thereby provoked their resentment without subduing their power while every one who approached his person and behaved with submission to his authority was treated with the highest politeness, all the neighboring potentates had successively felt the effects of his haughty, imperious disposition, and by indulging his poets, orators, and courtiers in their flatteries, and in their prognostications of universal empire, he conveyed faster, than by the prospect of his power alone, the apprehension of general conquest and subjection. The French greatness never, during his whole reign, inspired Charles with any apprehensions, and Clifford, it is said, one of his most favored ministers, went so far as to affirm that it were better for the king to be viceroy under a great and generous monarch than a slave to five hundred of his own insolent subjects. The ambition, therefore, and uncontrolled power of Lewis were no diminution of Charles's happiness and in other respects his condition seemed at present more eligible than it had ever been since his restoration. A mighty faction which had shaken his throne and menaced his family was totally subdued, and by their precipitate indiscretion had exposed themselves both to the rigors of the laws and to public hatred. He had recovered his former popularity in the nation, And what probably pleased him more than having a complaint parliament he was enabled to govern altogether without one but it is certain that the king amidst all the promising circumstances was not happy or satisfied whether he found himself exposed to difficulties for want of money or dreaded a recoil of the popular humor from the present arbitrary measures is uncertain perhaps the violent imprudent temper of the duke by pushing Charles upon dangerous attempts, gave him apprehension and uneasiness. He was overheard one day to say, in opposing some of the duke's hasty counsels, "'Brother, I am too old to go again to my travels. You may, if you choose it.' Whatever was the cause of the king's dissatisfaction, it seems probable that he was meditating some change of measures, and had formed a new plan of administration. He was determined, it is thought, to send the Duke to Scotland, to recall Monmouth, to summon a Parliament, to dismiss all his unpopular ministers, and to throw himself entirely on the good will and affections of his subjects. Amidst these truly wise and virtuous designs, he was seized with a sudden fit, which resembled an apoplexy, and though he was recovered from it by bleeding, he languished only for a few days and then expired, in the fifty-fifth year of his age, and twenty-fifth of his reign. He was so happy in a good constitution of body, and had never been so remarkably careful of his health, that his death struck as a great surprise into his subjects as if he had been in the flower of his youth. And their great concern for him, owing to their affection for his person, as well as their dread of his successor, very naturally when joined to the critical time of his death begat the suspicion of poison all circumstances however considered this suspicion must be allowed to vanish like many others of which all histories are full during the days of the king's illness clergymen of the church of england attended him but he discovered a total indifference toward their devotions and exhortations catholic priests were brought and he received the sacrament from them, accompanied with the other rites of the Romish church. Two papers were found in his cabinet, written with his own hand, and containing arguments in favor of that communion. The Duke had the imprudence immediately to publish these papers, and thereby both confirmed all the reproaches of those who had been the greatest enemies to his brother's measures, and afforded to the world a specimen of his own bigotry if we survey the character of charles the second in the different lights which it will admit of it will appear various and give rise to different and even opposite sentiments when considered as a companion he appears the most amiable and engaging of men and indeed in this view his deportment must be allowed altogether unexceptionable his love of raillery was so tempered with good breeding that it was never offensive his propensity to satire was so checked with discretion that his friends never dreaded their becoming the object of it his wit to use the expression of one who knew him well and who was himself a good judge could not be said so much to be very refined or elevated qualities apt to beget jealousy and apprehension in company as to be a plain gaining well-bred recommending kind of wit and though perhaps he talked more than strict rules of behavior might permit, men were so pleased with the affable communicative deportment of the monarch that they always went away contented both with him and with themselves. This, indeed, is the most shining part of the king's character, and he seems to have been sensible of it, for he was fond of dropping the formality of state and of relapsing every moment into the companion. In the duties of private life, his conduct, though not free from exception, was, in the main, laudable. He was an easy, generous lover, a civil, obliging husband, a friendly brother, an indulgent father, and a good-natured master. The voluntary friendships, however, which this prince contracted, nay, even his sense of gratitude, were feeble and he never attached himself to any of his ministers or courtiers with a sincere affection. He believed them to have no motive in serving him but self-interest, and he was still ready, in his turn, to sacrifice them to present ease or convenience. With a detail of his private character we must set bounds to our panegyric on Charles. The other parts of his conduct may admit of some apology, but can deserve small applause. He was, indeed, so much fitted for private life, preferably to public, that he even possessed order, frugality, and economy in the former, was profuse, thoughtless, and negligent in the latter. When we consider him as a sovereign, his character, though not altogether destitute of virtue, was in the main dangerous to his people and dishonorable to himself. Negligent of the interest of the nation, careless of its glory averse to its religion, jealous of its liberty, lavish of its treasure, sparing only of its blood, he exposed it by his measures, though he ever appeared but in sport, to the danger of a furious civil war, and even to the ruin and ignominy of a foreign conquest. Yet may all these enormities, if fairly and candidly examined, be imputed, in a great measure, to the indolence of his temper a fault which, however unfortunate in a monarch, it is impossible for us to regard with great severity. It has been remarked of Charles that he never said a foolish thing, nor ever did a wise one, a censure which, though too far carried, seems to have some foundation in his character and deportment. When the king was informed of this saying, he observed that the matter was easily accounted for, for that his discourse was his own. His actions were the ministries. If we reflect on the appetite for power inherent in human nature, and add to it the king's education in foreign countries and among the cavaliers, a party which would naturally exaggerate the late usurpations of popular assemblies upon the rights of monarchy, it is not surprising that civil liberty should not find in him a very zealous patron. Harassed with domestic faction weary of calumnies and complaints oppressed with debts straitened in his revenue he sought though with feeble efforts for a form of government more simple in its structure and more easy in its management but his attachment to france after all the pains which we have taken by inquiry and conjecture to fathom it contained still something it must be confessed mysterious and inexplicable the hopes of rendering himself absolute by louis's assistance seemed so chimerical that they could scarcely be retained with such obstinacy by a prince of charles's penetration and as to pecuniary subsidies he surely spent much greater sums in one season during the second dutch war than were remitted him from france during the whole course of his reign I am apt, therefore, to imagine that Charles was in this particular guided chiefly by inclination and by prepossession in favor of the French nation. He considered that people as gay, sprightly, polite, elegant, courteous, devoted to their prince, and attached to the Catholic faith; and for these reasons he cordially loved them. The opposite character of the Dutch had rendered them the objects of his aversion, and even the uncourtly humors of the english made him very indifferent towards them our notions of interest are much warped by our affections and it is not altogether without example that a man may be guided by national prejudices who has ever been little biased by private and personal friendship the character of this prince has been elaborately drawn by two great masters perfectly well acquainted with him the duke of buckingham and the marquis of halifax not to mention several elegant strokes given by sir william temple dr wellwood likewise and bishop burnet have employed their pencil on the same subject but the former is somewhat partial in his favor as the latter is by far too harsh and malignant instead of finding an exact parallel between charles the second and the emperor tiberius as asserted by that prelate It would be more just to remark a full contrast in opposition. The Emperor seems as much to have surpassed the King in abilities as he falls short of him in virtue. Provident, wise, active, jealous, malignant, dark, sullen, unsociable, reserved, cruel, unrelenting, unforgiving, these are the lights under which the Roman tyrant has been transmitted to us. And the only circumstance in which it can justly be pretended he was similar to Charles is his love of women, a passion which is too general to form any striking resemblance, and which that detestable and detested monster shared also with unnatural appetites. End of section thirty five, chapter sixty nine, part five. Recording by Jim Denison j-i-m-d-e-n-i-s-o-n voice.com.